0: Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew 9, 1 through 8. Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law said to themselves, That's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. The man jumped up and went home. Fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen, and they praised God for giving humans such authority. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we are in a new story this week. I almost went three weeks uh, in The Rich Young Ruler, but today instead, uh, we're going to kind of look at what might be on a lot of levels, uh, the inverse of the story we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. Um, From the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the story of a man who walked away from Jesus with great sadness. Uh, But today, this week, we have kind of the opposite. We're looking at the story of a man who walks away from Jesus with great joy. Uh, So we will look at the story together, um, just like we have all throughout January in this season of Epiphany. We're going to look at the story together together. With epiphany eyes, uh, eyes looking for new and fresh insight or, um, I don't know, some sort of new revelation to what I'm guessing is probably a really familiar story to a lot of you who are listening. If it's not a familiar story, uh, that's no big deal. But if it is, I'm hoping that you'll be able to look at it freshly, look at it with uh, new eyes. So uh, we're going to look at the story. We'll play around with some words for a little while because, you know, I love to do that. And then um, we're going to take a minute and look at what I feel like the Spirit has. Uh, to say to us or wants to say to us through the lens of the story today. So, uh, the story, it picks up with Jesus in Capernaum. And Capernaum is a a fishing village on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, If you think I'm saying it weird, here's a fun fact for you. The official way to pronounce this town is Capernaum. Uh, I did a lot of Googling on this. So, Capernaum, it, it doesn't matter. You can say it however you want. It's not super important. This is just free information for you today but Capernaum it had become a home base for Jesus and his disciples uh, this is where he met Matthew who wrote the story that Aaron just read for us uh, it's also where he met the fishermen James and John and Andrew and Peter uh, the fishermen they were um, most likely from Capernaum in fact archaeologists believe that they um, have found Peter's actual house where he lived and um, This story, this story, we find it in three quarters of the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all included in their stories about Jesus. And all of the stories about this particular event, they're all super similar. Um, But each storyteller includes a few extra details. And so uh, Matthew is going to be our home base to look at the story today, but I'm really going to use all three of them um, because I don't want to miss out on what the other two have to say. So for example, Mark's telling, uh, when he tells the story, he tells us a little bit more more about the where, uh, Mark seems to imply that the home that this story takes place in was the pl- a place that Jesus was living at the time, that uh, Mark kind of implies that it was his home or or where he considered his home to be. This was the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, so um, it was kind of like uh, from Mark, maybe an original home base. So uh, And then Luke, he tells us a little bit more about who's there. Uh, Luke tells us that it's a packed gathering of experts in theology and religion and that they came from all over the place, that... Uh, that um, every village all over Galilee and Judea, and then some folks were coming from Jerusalem. They were all coming to this little fishing village in hopes of uh, seeing Jesus. So we have a crowded room in a house. In Capernaum. And Jesus, he's teaching, and it's a room full of people, many of whom claim to be experts or are experts in the very thing that Jesus is claiming. Uh, Matthew, he tells us during this gathering that um, some men, uh, Mark tells us specifically that it's four men, that um, some men get wind that Jesus is back in town. They bring their buddy uh, who is paralyzed, they bring him to Jesus in order to be healed. Uh, Mark and Luke tell us uh, that when these men see that the crowd's too big, instead of like squeezing through or just giving up and going home, uh, with great persistence and creativity, these men um, end up tearing a hole in the roof and they lower their buddy down. Um, and Mark tells us put, they put him right at the feet of Jesus. Um, it's one of those times in the scriptures that I wish I had been there. Um, I've been in plenty of crowded rooms where uh, someone elbows their way through or like pushes you out of the way to get a better view. I have, I'm short, so I've been elbowed many a time uh, so that someone can see. I've also uh, been the elbow. I've been to enough concerts with Sarah Ferguson uh, that I have elbowed my way to many a front row with her. Like that idea feels super familiar to me, uh, but I've never been anywhere with a crowd uh, that someone risked the kind of property damage that these guys risk to get closer to the action. Um, I think it says a lot about their belief. Technically, these men should have taken their buddy to the temple, but it says a lot about what they be, or where they believed the temple to be, the holy place to be. If this really was Jesus' home at the time, these men, they were either more desperate than we read, or they must have believed, maybe a combination of desperation, but also belief. Um, they must have believed what they'd heard about Jesus, about this man who heals, a man um, who they would have thought in the moment would have forgiven a hole in order to, to heal heal a human. Uh, It's a good practice to learn how uh, or experiment as we read the Bible to learn how to put ourselves in the stories of Scripture. It's not the only way to read the Bible, uh, definitely, but it is a way to read the Bible. And and I really believe part of what we're supposed to see in this story is the role of the friends. It's a good and worthy and even holy thing to look at this act uh, as symbolic for the way Jesus' followers are meant to show up in the world that we're meant to show up as people who find creative ways, uh, to fill our communities with hope and peace, uh, the hope and peace that comes from healing and from forgiveness. Okay. So the buddies, they bring their friend, uh, to Jesus and they lower him on the ground and that he lands right in front of Jesus, right at the front of, or right at the feet of Jesus. And I struggle so much to imagine this moment. Uh, if you've ever watched the show, The Office, um, I've always pictured this particular moment of the man's already down, he's sitting in front of Jesus, and like the awkwardness of the crowd. Um, I pictured it that way, and and so often, like scenes from The Office, you could pick a ton of them, but in particular, it's like uh, the one time when uh, Michael Scott, who's the main character, when he decides to propose to a woman named Carol at this big party where all these people are in attendance, and right in front of every single person in the room, very premature in the their relationship michael asks carol if he can have the honor of being her husband and the room is totally silent as she responds can we go somewhere more private to talk about this and it's hilarious. Like he had planned every single thing except what she might say, uh, all of the moments up to her saying yes. And then the moment comes and it is so silent and it is so awkward. And that's how I've imagined this moment so many times, something like that, that like awkward hang of silence. Uh, but I think I'm wrong. I really think I'm wrong. I don't think that's how it went at all. Uh, maybe there was a little bit of awkward silence, something, um, when, when, when an entire group of people comes to awareness about something or uh, coming to awareness that there's a hole in the ceiling and that there's a man on the ground, I'm sure there may have been you know, some kind of measure of awkward silence. But for me, the epiphany this week has been uh, looking with new eyes into Jesus in this moment. And it just changed how I imagined it. It, it, it took away the awkward in a lot of ways. Um, here's what's interesting to me. There's no comment about the roof no comment. I think maybe that's why Matthew doesn't even mention it in his story, because Jesus doesn't. There is no mention anywhere in any of the three Gospels who tell the story of him commenting on the roof. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell the exact same thing in this moment. The thing that gets acknowledged isn't vandalism. The thing that gets acknowledged is faith. It says it's as seeing their faith. Jesus said to the paralyzed man, be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. Their faith, Uh, the men high above uh, who have to be peering through the hole that they've just made to see what's going to happen, I think their faith is acknowledged. But also I think the man who's laying down on the ground uh, at the feet of Jesus longing to be healed, I think he's part of their faith. Jesus, he notices their faith, and, and then he says three things to the man on the ground. He calls him his child. He says, be encouraged. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And I want to take a minute on each of these phrases, uh, as with curiosity we look at the story of Jesus. Um, the first one is my child. My child, and other versions of the Bible, often gets translated uh, son or my son. Um, and child and son, they're not necessarily a bad translation, it just doesn't tell the whole story of what Jesus is saying uh, with just like one little English word. Uh, the Greek word for this is technon, and uh, it's the same word, this is so interesting, it's the same word that. Mary uses uh, when she's describing Jesus, when she talks about Jesus. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, a theologian I reference often, who I love, uh, he calls this, this word, technon, he calls it a word of infinite tenderness. It's a word that implies uh, a reciprocal relationship between two people, a relationship of love and trust flowing between To people. It's a word that includes within it an acknowledgement of desire and an acknowledgement of faith and an acknowledgement of belief. Uh, This man lying on his mat with a whole room staring at him, I can't imagine that he has ever been more aware of the condition that he's in. He is, I imagine, so unbelievably conscious of all that's broken and busted on the outside of his body as everybody looks at him. But also, if he's anything like anyone else who finds themselves in dangerous proximity to the holy, I'm guessing he is just as conscious of the broken and busted places uh, inside of his body. And the first words that he hears uh, are words of the first word that he hears is a word of infinite tenderness. my child, my son. Uh, the next phrase that I want to look at is "be encouraged or in other translation, um, most often it's translated like "be of good cheer." Um, and honestly that it's kind of a terrible. Translation, uh, English has its limits and we find them in this particular phrase. Um, the way it's translated reads more like uh, if a little, if a kid were to get hurt and um, he's crying or screaming and, and a cold parent or teacher were to look at him and just be like cheer up, like buck up, like quit crying, just, just something like you need to end this so that you can move on cheer up. Uh, that, that's kind of how it comes across. But in the original language, it's so much bigger than even what we think of as encouragement or, or, or so much bigger than cheering up. Uh, those words are really, really, really small for this. Um, I was reading a writer this week who said, whoever picked those words to translate this had a very poor understanding of the human heart. Ouch. Um The the word here is bigger. It's far closer to courage than cheer. I'm legitimately no expert in Greek, so to me it is hilarious that I'm even about to say this. But have courage might be a better translation of what Jesus says to this man. Uh, It essentially means um, it's the idea of being completely safe, completely fine in a single moment, in, in the current moment. It, 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 it gives off the idea of a moment that is absent of all fear. It's an acknowledgement of safety and of dignity and an assurance that there is no need for any fear. This statement being encouraged is Jesus in his infinite tenderness, acknowledging and assuring both the dignity of this man and the safety of his own presence. And that's no small thing. It's honor, and it's protection, it's hope, all wrapped up into one word. We need better words in English. Um, And then there's the third thing that he says. Then Jesus throws a curveball. He says, my child, he says, be encouraged, and then the curveball comes. The third thing he says is, your sins are forgiven. And no one was expecting that. No one was expecting that Jesus would say that. If there wasn't an awkward pause before Jesus started speaking, uh, I I have to imagine that there was one in this moment. Every single person in the room except for Jesus had an expectation of what might happen in this moment. And then Jesus essentially says, uh, your sins have been sent away. And it's bizarre and it's surprising. It's both an acknowledgement of what's happening in the moment, an acknowledgement of the man, and at the same time, an act of forgiveness. It's a moment that everyone expected something completely different. But goodness, it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. Jesus, uh, his three things that he says to this man, uh, he looks at this man, and on every level of his humanity, he says, My boy. There is no room for fear here. All of the things that you think disqualify you from this moment, from my presence, all of them are sent away. That's what he's saying. Have you ever in your life heard anything more beautiful than that? It's like what we're all longing to hear. I I hope you've heard that. I I hope that from Jesus, you've heard those exact same words, my boy, my girl, my child. There's no room for your fear here. Of, and all of the things that you think disqualify you uh, from me have been sent away. It's the song of the gospels, the song of grace. And the religious experts in the room, they say it can't be true. They call it blasphemy. They hate it. They stand up against it in their own minds. The, the scripture reads, that's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? That's what Ma- or Matthew tells us that they're thinking. Most likely they had never heard a man say it before, your sins are forgiven. Uh, it's interesting to me that the stories of Jesus, the story, in the story Jesus seems to intuit what people are thinking in the room and that it's only the religious leaders who dare to disagree with grace. Jesus responds to what's raging in their souls And he answers their question uh, with a question out loud. He says, "Is, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? Which one's easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? And then he tells the man lying on the floor, stand up, pick up your mat and walk home. Essentially, what Jesus is saying in his question to the religious experts was, uh, you're right to think that only God can forgive sins, but don't you see? Only God can make the lame walk. The forgiveness and the wonders, both of them, all of them, they are all from God. God. Uh, A a few years later and a few chapters later in the Bible, in Acts, Peter, my very favorite disciple, and I'm not supposed to have favorites, but I do. uh, at, At Pentecost, he has this moment where he's describing Jesus to the crowd and he describes him as a man full of signs and wonders, which God did through him in the midst of us. It's essentially what Jesus is declaring about himself to the religious leaders. He is absolutely declaring himself to be God. And he is also doing what he's always doing. He is waking people up to the power and the activity and the hope of God in the midst of life in this exact moment. Waking people up to the work of the kingdom in this moment. Jesus, he speaks into the soul of every person in the room uh, the power of healing and the power of forgiveness. And the same is true for us today because Jesus is still speaking the same language. He's still speaking the power of forgiveness, and he's still speaking the power of healing into the souls of every single person. He's still saying, my boy, my girl, my child, there is no need for fear here. All of the things that you think disqualify you have been sent away. So here's what I want to do today. Um... I want to take a moment and listen. Uh, it, it, I, I legitimately say this phrase every week because it's still true. It has been a tough year, a very tough few months. And I think, um, I think part of the impact of that tough has been that as people, we've gotten into the habit um, because we're constantly having to pivot. Uh, I think we've gotten into the habit of reacting at the expense of listening. Um, and because I love you, it's killing us. It's killing me and it's killing you. This this reaction, our reactivity um, isn't producing courage or empathy or wisdom for the most part in our lives. Uh, for the for most of us, our reactivity is producing fear and anxiety and scarcity and aloneness and fill in your own blank. Um, so for our sale today, I, I would love to just take a minute and allow us to listen. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna read a list of it's like a whole list of things that God says about us in the scriptures. I didn't make any of them up uh, there. I took them from the Bible, so you can argue with the Bible, but you can't argue with me on this one. But um, So I'm just going to read this. These are things in the scriptures that God has said about you. Not the person sitting next to you. I mean, yes, the person sitting next to you, but I'm only talking to you. This is for you. So um, so first I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will put one or more of them so deeply in your soul that you can't get rid of it, uh, that it will linger in your mind and on your heart all week so that you have to deal with it um, so often that that you have to figure out if you could ever believe it's true. And then I'm going to read this list. So so if you will, uh, close your eyes and we will be in the moment. If you want to, um, we talk a lot about connecting our bodies into what we want our brains and hearts to do. So if you want to hold out your hands, Hold out your hands um, as if you want to receive something from the Lord. So I'll pray, and then I'll read this list. Father, I ask that, um, that you would imprint part of this list on us, that you will um, find a piece of it that will take root in our lives, that it will uh, move into our hearts and move into our souls and and buy a house and put up a pool because it's not leaving I pray that it will be so deeply ingrained in us that we have to deal with it, that we have to believe if you could ever dare to say something so kind and so good and so true about us. So I ask you to meet us in this moment, calm Holy Spirit. Here are things that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have said of you. You are chosen, set apart, and dearly loved by God. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are my child, dearly loved, the object of my joy. You are a friend of God. You are forgiven, past, present, and future. You are and always will be an object of my love. You are a citizen of heaven, of the kingdom of God. You are a temple of God, a place where God chooses to dwell. You are a new creation. You are a son or a daughter or a child of the king. You are God's workmanship, a masterpiece unique in all the world. You are righteous and holy in you there is no flaw. You are dearly loved and uniquely loved by God. You belong to God and God belongs to you. You are my child. You have nothing to fear. And everything that you think disqualifies you has been sent away.